0: He attempted to play the role of the grieving widower to the best of his ability, and which he did very well. Yeah, it's that facade, isn't it? It's the the idea that something really, really unspeakable is going on, you know, behind that. The thing that I could never really uh, get my head around was how he planned it all so meticulously and how he really believed he was going to get away with it. I'm Nicola Tallent.
1: And you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld, in Ireland and across the globe. When killer Joe O'Reilly bludgeoned his wife Rachel to death at their home in the Knoll in County Dublin in October 2004, he thought he'd get away with murder. But years after he was convicted to a life sentence for his dreadful crime, nobody could have expected that the former advertising executive would continue to fascinate the public. This week he's yet again to be the subject of a new documentary to be screened on RTE, while a Channel 5 programme is also airing. So what is it about Ordinary Joe and his plot to kill 17 years ago that is rarely far from the headlines? And why do people still want answers to his awful crime? Today I'm talking to journalist Jenny Friel, whose book The Suspect is the definitive account of murder in the Knoll. She tells me about her extraordinary meetings with the killer as he protested his innocence, the gruesome murder tours he took her on in his home, and how his tall tales and desire for recognition eventually backfired on him in spectacular fashion. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Did you ever think back in 2004 that you'd go out in a story and you'd be still talking about it 17 years later? No. Short answer. (laughs) (laughs) Right.
0: Yeah, no, it was something that's just gone on. And still, like, you know, it's not just, you know, my professional life, but in my personal life as well, you know, people ask about it. They always come
1: round to it at a dinner party.
0: Well, sure. I was up in Ballyshannon at the weekend where my husband's from and uh, one of his friend's fathers like, you know, straight in with the, oh, I saw Rose Calloway on the route to television recently and wanted to know about where I thought Joe was, like, how, what yeah. he was up to or whether he was going to get out or... And then in ver- inevitably, they always ask about Nikki Pelly as yeah. well. Is he still with Nikki?
1: Well, I mean, look, I have to admit, I even do find it a fascinating story and I think mm-hmm. I've quizzed you quite a few times on it as well. Yeah. I'm sorry to do it again, Jenny. You're in the hot seat there. But, um, you know, not to downgrade any murder or to say any murder is an ordinary story because it wasn't that. It was a horrendous situation. We were greeted with um, a young mother, battered to death in her house um, a Garda team looking for a killer and two little boys left you know without a parent horrendous but you know as a reporter I suppose we do cover a lot Mm. of these things and you know some of these cases just are parked and the families have to fight to have them recognised Yeah. but for some reason Rachel O'Reilly and uh, Indeed, her husband, Joe, seemed to have what you could crassly call
0: the X factor. Yes, you could crassly call it that. Yeah, it's yeah, they did. Yeah, there was a lot to it. But I think ultimately the main fascination came with that Joe made himself so available from the very beginning. Mm. And he he attempted to play the role to of the grieving widower, mm. um, to the best of his ability, and which he did very well. Um, he and he said yes to a number of interviews, including one with me, um, and it just it just blew up. Mm. Um, I think if he was to have his time back again, he uh, would know not to have done that. Um, not that I think it would have changed the outcome mm. by any stretch. But I think that maybe the attention that that particular case got might right. not have been as big. But there were the other factors that you mentioned there. The, the, the fact that, you know, Rachel was in a house, like, you know, an ordinary um, mother of very two very small children. Mm, mm. Like they were toddlers at the time. Um, and, you know, she was uh, killed so brutally. Mm. And the fact that she was found by her mother. Um, and I think, you know, that For a few days, there was this idea that there was like, you know, a murderer or murderers on the loose in North Dublin somewhere. Um, And then all the stuff that the, you know, and then it emerged that he was having an affair. And then it emerged that, uh, well, during the trial, some of that incredible evidence came up. And was the first time, Mm. you know, that some of the technical evidence had ever been used to such incredible effect here. So all of those things.
1: And I suppose from the beginning of it, we were looking at what we thought was the perfect family. It was this very middle-class couple with their lovely home Mm -hmm. outside Dublin, two gorgeous little kids. Um, He had a very good job. She seemed to be working from home, yet juggling a career as well. And they were very good-looking and they just were seemed to be the perfect family, but as we sort of, after that tragedy occurred and we started scratching behind the surface, we could see that it was far from that. Yeah. And maybe that was part of
0: the fascination,
1: yeah. really, was it?
0: Yeah, I think so. And and, and also because Rachel, it, it, it felt or it feels like Rachel had been very private about her marriage woes, about, you know, the fact that Joe had pulled back and um, she was worried about their marriage, but mm. he had only really confided in maybe one or two friends at most that we still know of to this day. Um, so yeah, they they did they were portraying that. Perfect family unit. Mm. You know, they, they played softball. They were on the same softball team. There was a lot of, you know, barbecues in the neighborhood, and Rachel was very into that. That's why she had wanted to move out to the Nile in the first place to have to, to provide their children with that kind of, you know, almost Walton esque kind mm. of um, childhood. And uh, so, yeah, I think I think that was a big part of. It's that yeah, it's that facade, isn't it? It's mm. the the idea that something really really unspeakable is going on, you know, behind that, because that's the other thing I think that caught people's fascinations and certainly mine, the thing that I could never um, really uh, get my head around was how he planned it all so meticulously Mm -hmm. and how he really believed he was going to get away with it. Um, He was, it's quite an extraordinary person, really. So
1: bring you back to 2004 and you're in the newsroom. Yes. And you're asked to go out and yeah. see what you can well, establish. It's
0: a, yeah, it's a fairly typical, you know, request um, to a reporter in a newsroom. It's kind of like go out and basically door knock, knock on someone's door, mm. see if they'd be willing to talk about um, the uh, the victim and their loss. So is,
1: this was in the, the, the week, I presume, after? Well, it was about
0: a week and a half, I'd say. Maybe but yeah, about seven or eight days later. And... Um, yeah, it took me ages to find because they're out in the, the house is out in the middle of nowhere up in the knoll. So um, I found it. It's beside a quarry, Murphy's Quarry. So eventually found it. Um, no one there. Um, I knew that the mom lived up in that, that not uh, that Joe Riley's mother lived up in um, Dunlear. So uh, I kind of figured that if they weren't in the house, they might be up there. Called up there, no sign either. So just on my way home, I thought I'll just give it a, one more shot. Call into the house in the knoll again and lo and behold, Joe and his mum, Anne, were there. Now,
1: had you seen photographs of him up to this point? He had been photographed.
0: I don't think so. No, I don't remember. But he was in the background back as the grieving As the grieving husband. father. No, at that stage, I think there were only pictures of Rachel out there. Okay. So I didn't know who I was looking, going to be looking at or looking for or anything. Mm. So, yeah, so Joe came. To the, they looked wrecked. I remember that. I remember them coming to the door and them just looking shattered. And I because I don't think they used the front door much. It was that typical Irish home where they used the back patio door all the time to get in and out. And uh, you know, like you know, this seventeen years ago, like I, I suppose I had a fair amount of experience at door knocking at that stage. But it's it's not an easy or a nice thing to do. It's just part and parcel of the job. But you're always aware that you know it's awful. It's awful. Yeah, it's awful. Mm. So, but you're you're trying to be as you don't want to be intruding
1: on someone's he, grief, but yeah. you at the same time have to give them an opportunity. Exactly. I mean, and at this
0: point, he is presumably looking for his wife's killer. Yeah. And and he, he, and he did give a number of interviews, like mm. te- Dorothy, uh, television news, um, I think, and obviously the infamous Late Late Show appearance. But um, And they were very polite, I have to say. It's like you kind of go up with your heart and your mouth a bit because sometimes you can get a, a less than mm. friendly response. But um, he... He was immediately kind of receptive to the idea, which I was quite surprised at, um, because I suppose it was still kind of like quite recent. Mm. Um, I had kind of gone fully expecting to be told no thanks. Thanks, but no thanks. So um, he said he couldn't do it at the time. Would I come back later that night to the house um, that he had his stuff to do? So that suited me grand. It meant I could go off and get a photographer and go back to the house. And did you so. tell
1: him, like, that you were coming back, was it okay to come back with a photographer? Oh, yeah. He was all
0: okay with that?
1: Yeah, yeah, it was all fine. What were your first impressions of him? I mean, he's... He's tall, mm.
0: yeah, big guy. Um, and kind of... Did you think he was sort of a big, gentle yeah, soul? Yeah, there's something quite kind of like, um, the voice is soft enough, he's kind of he's kind of a bit, you know, um, he's, yeah, gentle, I suppose, is, is a nice word of, saying it goofy? maybe a bit, little bit goofy. Yeah. You wouldn't like, you, you know, yeah, you wouldn't be finding him massively uh, attractive as such. Just he's, he's very pleasant, a okay. very pleasant man. And he was uh, friendly and his mum was nice as well. She always was, um, Anna Riley. And uh, so, yeah so we went back I went back with the photographer that night it was 8 o'clock late enough now to be doing it Um, but uh, and it was freezing cold I remember it was freezing cold we were in the pitch dark I was panicking about whether I'd find the place again because this is pre Google Maps or you know all that kind of stuff so um, we went to the door and he was very friendly he was nervous he was visibly nervous when we went in Um, and he was offering us tea and all the rest and everything and it kind of took me a few moments to realise that we were actually in the house where it had happened. You know, I, I wasn't thinking, you know, straight, I suppose, maybe, or I hadn't really, that hadn't really considered, kind of it. considered mm. it. Because the house was freezing, you know, to the point of where we didn't take off our coats, really. And he was in a big kind of navy um wooden jumper and he was apologising for that and he was apologising for the mess in the house because obviously the police had turned it upside down and the kids he and the kids weren't living there they were staying up with his mum on Lear. so he had agreed to meet me there so we wouldn't be disturbing the children in the mother's house so but you could have met we could have met elsewhere anywhere.
1: yeah you could have you yeah. were going to just sit down and talk to him you could have met in a pub or in this a coffee I'm- shop
0: listen to it for a reporter it's gold you know because mm-hmm. it's all colour mm-hmm. you know like it's all it's all adds to the you're able experience. to describe what you're, the house was like exactly like you know there were notes on the fridge there were notes on the fridge I remember from the the children um, like Happy Mother Day kind okay. of stuff you know like stuck with magnets and stuff I remember looking around and thinking looking at that and you do yeah that's a real moment where you just go God what happened here you know mm. but um, so yeah he was lovely and There was the embarrassing moment, and I've told the story a million times, but um, I'd forgotten to bring a notebook. Um, There was a bit of a kind of like a a bit of a laugh about that. And he very kindly went off and got me a brand new hard book kind of, you know. He found you amusing that you forgot your notebook. I think that kind of helped put him at ease a bit because I was coming across as a bit gormless, I suppose. Mm. But um, so we sat down and he was like we were there for about the guts of two hours, probably longer and uh, he was great, like, to interview, He like, everything. He obviously wasn't telling me the truth, but, uh, like, you could ask but him. But you, at the time, thought he was. And, of course. And he, yeah. was,
1: he was telling you the details of what happened or he was,
0: he was telling you how he was feeling, which... Both. Both. Because you, you walk an interviewee through mm. all of that stuff. You get them to tell you chronologically what happened and then the, the ultimate and the, the most important questions are, how do you feel? Mm. Like, how did that make you feel? Like, and what's happening now and what you hope to happen? Um, so he was, yeah. And, and actually the photographer sat in with me um, as they often do. Um, and Chris would have, like, he was in, you know, he was a veteran photographer at that street. He worked for PA for a lot of his career. Um, and I could tell he was fascinated with it all. You know, he was great to have there because he was just nodding along and like, you know, short of asking questions himself kind of thing. But uh because it's it's rare that it's not that rare, but like it's it, it's rare to get up that close and personal with someone that quickly mm. after such a horrendous thing happens because it, it was only a few days later, really, you mm-hmm. know, um, so and yeah. it's very raw. And yeah. as
1: you say, the notes are still on the fridge at this point. Mm. Um, you know, he hasn't cleared, she she, she, essentially or her spirit or whatever yeah. you would call it is still in the house. It's still a family home where yeah. a mother probably that morning fed her two children at that kitchen table and dropped them to school and, and then yeah. their lives are shattered within a few hours later in the day. But, um, so all of that is giving you a really good and powerful picture then oh, as a yeah. writer yeah, to be able to describe this devastation.
0: Yeah. And, and, You know, like, it's like a good book or a good movie. Like, you know, something goes by very quickly because, like, I remember, you know, sitting into the car afterwards and, you know, looking down and I think it was like half ten or something. We couldn't believe we'd been there that long. But Mm. we we packed a lot into it, you know. Um, And he was, and he was, I thought he was being very stoic, you know, um, because he was, you know, he, and I felt that he was telling his story as best, or, He was telling the events of what happened as best he could, because as you mentioned earlier, it's about, you know, doing everything you can to find the killers. And also, I have never had anything horrendous like that happen to my life, Mm -hmm. to, to me in my life or any of my loved ones. So I'm not sure you can ever predict how you would react or behave in such a situation So I always give someone the benefit of the doubt. You know, like I don't think people act weird, Mm -hmm. you know. I, I think that they, you know, they act as they're acting because they're coping with whatever trauma they are coping with. Mm. But um he was good. He was um and he, you know, we, we talked, we we went back to when they first met. He was telling me about her childhood, the fact that the family had gone to live in Australia for a year but had come back because they weren't happy, had they all all the Caliley children had been adopted, and you know, that was something that Rachel was uh, you know, very um involved in. I think that she'd made contact with her. Birth family not long before she was murdered. Um, he was incredibly open, mm-hmm. and he was telling me about his life, where he went to school, how they met in Arnett's, how he joined the local. He heard, overheard her saying that she were, played softball for a particular team, so he joined up. So in order to meet her, in order to meet her, because he had spotted her. She was quite tall. He was six foot five, I think, or something, and he is six foot five. And I think she was she was quite tall as well. So she know he noticed her straight away. Um, and also she was gorgeous. She was, mm. you know, blonde, bubbly, friendly, um, uh, you know, f- friendly woman. So he pursued her mm. and he made no like bones about that. And um, and was he showing you pictures of this as you went along? And No, we got to the pictures later. Um, he, because pictures obviously are always a huge part of a newspaper article. Mm. Um, so, and like, I think that's uh I think that was the first time, that was the only time throughout the interview where he kind of showed, um, you know, a, a, a large amount of uh, emotion. He took out the the wedding albums, which were these huge big, you know, those, um leather bound books mm. that people get. And, uh, you know, they'd had the whole, th- the shebang, like they had had, like, you know, I think it was a Rolls Royce and several bridesmaids. And, you know, I think he was in short having a top hat kind of thing. Like he was full on lovely wedding. And uh, I do remember he was saying that um, he hadn't seen these albums in a very long time. And there was a few moments where he had to kind of pull himself together. And, you know, there was definitely, and and, and I think that emotion was real. And
1: I was going to say that that probably seemed, you know, familiar to you, even though we can never imagine how we would behave Hmm. in these circumstances. We can surely imagine that we'd be devastated and tearful and... Oh, no, Enable yeah. able to maybe do an interview. That's how I sort of mm. feel I would maybe be, but I don't know. You, you, uh, you don't think you would be able to? I don't think so. I don't mm. think I'd be able to speak. I don't think I'd be yeah. able to, I mean... But like, if they have been murdered? You have to, you have to go on autopilot. And yeah. you do, and of course, the focus will be to find the killer yeah. and, yeah. You, you know, the thoughts that somebody who has done that to your loved one is out there. Yeah. Um.
0: But as you're sitting... Mm. He suggests. As yeah. So we so we 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 come to the you know to the the day of when it happened you know and this is a good like you know forty five minutes an hour into the interview you know so we come come to the day so it's like can you talk me through what happened that day where were you he you know, he was going off to the gym and uh, he got the phone calls from the crash owners to say that Rachel hadn't turned up and then he kind of came up to well. Um, when I got back to the house, um Rose came running out and uh she told me not to come into the house with the kids. He had brought the children with him. Um and uh then, you know, she brought me down to the bedroom and I was going, Oh right, she goes and all of a sudden he says, well, do you want to see where it happened? And you just kinda go, Pardon? How do you answer that? <laughs> well, you, you have to answer in the affirmative yeah. because like it's a it's a great moment. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's You can't give, you can't pass it up, even though you might not want to. Mm. And I remember kind of looking over at Chris and kind of going, oh, and he's going, well, yes. So we got up and followed him down to the um, bedroom. And yeah, um, it's a bungalow. So, you know, you kind of go out the kitchen and down kind of like a corridor where it was three bedroom bungalow and uh, their bedroom was at the end of the car door opposite the bathroom I think and um, he was apologising again for the state of the house and he was saying you know you're going to notice because they had taken away the entire door jam because the forensics had been in so like it it it, it was like a murder scene like it was quite um, uh, disturbed yeah very much so and then so he turns on the light and it's like you know real stark like because it like it's pitch black outside you know like it was mm. I think it was the middle of October at this stage or coming into November maybe but um he went into the bedroom and I remember myself and Chris we were kind of standing at the doorway he kind of didn't want to go actually into the bedroom but and we had a good enough view of like what was going on there were black uh black bags of clothes and stuff on the bed and it was a mess and uh He basically showed us what he thought had happened, you know, during the attack. Um, So there was a big hole in the carpet where they had cut out where her body had lain. So it was concrete underneath. Mm. And then it was just this huge kind of oval shape. So it wasn't like a, you know, like a chalk outline of her body or anything. It was just this... And it was then, where her body and probably her, the, this, you know, uh, yeah, where her body, the length of what her body would have been lying, yeah, and more, like yeah. just the whole kind of like thing, chunk had been taken out. And he actually got down on one knee, and um, and he, he did this with other people, with, with a lot of other people, as we heard through the trial. This was what became known as his famous murder tours. Exactly. So um, he got down on one knee and he started bringing his hand up behind his head holding the imaginary murder weapon and he basically kind of like you know brought it down where he said he thought you know where, where well where he knew because he had seen where her body was where he knew Rachel's head had been and um, basically said that yeah this is what kind of like probably happened and he you know she, the, the murderer brought it like whatever the weapon was, down in her head several times, and he did this repeatedly himself. Yeah, he did it about three or four times, and I remember that we were kind of. I just remember myself and what do you say, you know, surreal. You, it's yeah, and you you don't say anything. You're quite, I remember feeling quite nauseous actually, um, and because uh, I had to excuse myself to go to the bathroom at one stage just to. And Jenny, was the room cleaned, or no, was there still no? Blood? He was pointing out. He was pointing out the blood spatter on the walls. He was kind of like because the door jam had been taken out, even though it had been taken out because there had been so loads of blood on the door jam. There was still, and it, you know, blood kind of goes brown after a while. So there's just all this kind of brown specks, and he was pointing it all out, and you could still see some of it on some of the carpet. And suggesting
1: why it was there and mm. why it was here because of the way. She had been killed. Yeah. And what an odd situation to find yourself in.
0: Yeah, it was. I and mean, you see, the thing was, I suppose because I was younger and not as experienced as I am now, um, I kind of didn't realise at the time how unusual it was. Because I can tell you now that's never happened again. <laughs> um, so I didn't really quite grasp how weird this situation was mm. you know I, 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 I kind of came away uh, but it was one of the things that the photographer mentioned to me in the car on the way down he said in all my career like you know I've never, never gone seen. never seen anything like that and he was a smoker you know like you know the minute we got into the car he was like you know the fags were coming out and he was you know puffing the whole way back to Dublin but um it was yeah but you had to go and steady yourself I, yeah, went into the bathroom kind of took a few deep breaths and kind of like came back out again and went down and um, we resumed the, the interview then and, you know. So he
1: did this and then he, you were brought back up to the kitchen where he continued yeah. talking as yeah. if
0: that was just part of the story. Yeah, he had just been, you know, giving us another, I suppose, pillar to build the, you know, interview mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. But like... As we know now, he, he clearly got some kick, some, some I don't know, some kind of satisfaction out of bringing people to do that. Because Rose and Jim Calloway have spoken before about mm. how they didn't really want to be shown. They had, and would, would from
1: your estimates of the day's, after it and from their interviews about these murder tours that they were also brought on. Did theirs happen before or after yours?
0: Oh, I'm not sure. I would imagine before because I think there was a lot of activity. Like, you know, well, well, because the house was closed off for a while. So... um, Did it feel rehearsed when you were brought on it? Yeah, that's fair. That's a fair point. It did. Yeah, for sure. Like, I did kind of, you know... Like, yeah, if you're asking me, was it kind of spontaneous or was it, did I feel he'd probably maybe done this before? Not that I gave it all that much thought at the mm-hmm. time, but in hindsight, yeah, I would mm-hmm. say that he'd, uh, he'd done it a few times. All right. And we know he did. Like there were other friends that he did that and not even friends, like vague, na- like neighbours that he would have known vaguely. Do you want to see where it happened? And the same scenario down on one knee. and He told, I think during the trial, he said, one of the neighbours said that she hadn't really wanted to, but he had said to her that some people had said to him it brought them a sense of peace, you know, like that he he had. So he was encouraging people Mm -hmm. to go down with him to the bedroom.
1: Mm. Now, when you went back and and you finished the interview with Mm. him, I mean, you were obviously at that point, through his reaction, initial reaction to the murder and what he was hoping for, in other words, to catch the killer. Yeah. What sort of emotions did he ha- display after he had
0: taken you on this weird murder tour? He, in the sense of when he was talking about who he thought might have done it, mm. he was I, he was kind of saying there had been speculation in the papers at the time that it had been a gang that had been hitting North Dublin at the time. Um, And so he mentioned that and he said that, you know, it would have to have been someone who was quite strong because Rachel was quite strong and she wouldn't have gone down without a fight. I remember him saying things like that um, and that, you know, uh, and then there was a, you know, there was, he, there was, you know, him wondering about why, you know, that it happened down in the bedroom. And I did ask him, At one point, you know, did he think that maybe she'd had an affair? Um, And he he was a bit taken aback at that question, actually. And he was kind of saying, you know, well, no, I hadn't thought about that. But, you know, maybe we'll never know now. But I don't know. So he was somewhat forgiving of her if she had. Well, knowing what we know now, Mm. um, you know, I think maybe. All along he was. Yeah, well, he was. You see, and that's the, that was always the thing about Joe O'Reilly. I think he always thought he was cleverer than he was. Mm. Like how he didn't think that his relationship with Nikki Pelly was going to come out. You know, or how he didn't, you know, just various other bits How and he thought he was going to get away with how it really. He well, he nearly did. Yeah. But
1: we'll come to that. Um, you're... Describing it with some cynicism now, when you look back <laughs> as you sit into the car and this weird situation yeah. had happened. But at the time you came away oh, yeah. believing that this was very nice man.
0: Who a had nice just man who suffered this had happened
1: to and you you as you say, you can't expect how you'd react in that situation. So this weird mor- murder tour you had put down to the fact that okay, it's just a reaction to yeah. Yeah, what has happened. Yeah. So as you're driving
0: away, you've met what you believe to be a a tragic husband who's lost his wife. Yeah. And you see, you you use the word cynicism there. Like, I'm going back to a newsroom filled with cynicism. Um, So, you know, I remember asking the photographer, Chris, um, you know, do you think he he could have done it? And he goes, I don't know, but I, I, I really hope not. I liked him. You know, so like that, so so I wasn't alone. So we did have that conversation, but and when we got back, I was very vocal in my, you know, um, because often in a lot of these cases as well, like there's, you know, cynicism can lead to, you know, assumptions in the wrong. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. They lead to, they can lead Mm. to assumptions being made that aren't right. So, you know, like, and our job is to keep an open mind, you know, just as much as. R.D. or, you know, whoever. So I was keeping an open mind. Mm. But you kept not only an open mind, but you also kept in touch with them. Yeah.
1: And um, you, the case went on. He, some weeks later, went on The Late Late Show and it was fairly clear at that point that Rose Calloway... Oh, yeah. ...believed yeah. that he had more
0: to do with it than he was letting on. Well, that was the turning point, really, wasn't it? Mm. The Late Late Show. Um. And we know now that Rose had been told by Gardy at that point. there's a, it's really interesting. There was an interview that he did with RTE News with Rose and Jim, Jimmy, um in I don't know whose house it was in. I think it might have been Rose and Jimmy's, but um they were all sitting all three of them were sitting on the sofa together, I think. but I just remember them sitting quite closely and them being, you know, a unit and looking at each other when they were talking and you know, being there for each other. And then a few weeks later, they went on the Late Late Show and the it was the polar opposite. It was Rose could not look at him. Her face, she is she is a Dublin mammy like she is. She's a gorgeous woman and she is. Um, but you would I don't think you'd cross her, you know, and she uh, I remember I remember her just staring straight ahead. And I, we know now that she was looking out at her family because they were in the audience. Um, and uh, when Joe spoke, she she could not, she just, she couldn't even mm. look at him. She just... And do you remember at
1: that point you were still in touch with him maybe? And yeah. like when I say you were in touch with him, you weren't ringing him every week or anything. But no. you, were,
0: you were getting, you were call, maybe called out a few times. Called to out to the house a few times. Text, met him out in Bluebell where he was working, I think twice. Um, so yeah, no. And like, and also this was over a long time. Like mm. that court case didn't, like... God, 2007 that 2007. happened. In, so three years, yeah. or certainly up to three years. Yeah. Now, I didn't keep in touch with him for the entire three years because um, I'd say, because he 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 actually, you know, obviously took a step back. He knew not to keep kind of, you know, talking mm. to journalists after a while, you know. So. After he became the suspect. Yeah. You know, but
1: while he thought he was in control and he thought he was the one yeah. that was, that, that his narrative... Was working basically. He was a, certainly a very friendly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, did he
0: try and drum up stories with you, or did you always have to go to him? No, no. In fairness, now, now I would have always rung him or texted him mm. or asked to meet him or whatever. And he was always very. Um, he was always very. Um, he was always very accommodating. Actually, I remember being going out to the house once, and it must have been in the springtime because he was bringing taking out the. Because their garden was quite big. It had a bit of land around it. And uh, I just always remember the kids being there and just, you know, how, just how sad it was, Mm. you know, that uh, like he was there with his kind of like ride on motor, you know, um, lawnmower and the kids kind of like, you know, running around and playing. And they're really friendly, lovely little things. But um, so, yeah, no, he was, but he was quite open. But as, as time went on, you could tell that the um, relationship between himself and the Calladys had, compl- well, he was very open about it, had completely broken down. Um, now, you know, he would have, like, a lot of the stuff that he would have kind of said was off the record, and he was just kind of, like, saying it, And but he was quite, I should have put it, he was quite bitchy about them, mm. you know, and, he, mm. like, suggesting that there was a lot more to, you know, uh, Rachel's, you know, relationship Then people thought, like it wasn't the big happily family that everyone thought it was, whatever. But that was him manipulating, Mm -hmm. you know, a situation or trying to.
1: And I think his relationship with the media went sour as well, didn't Mm. it? As I suppose as the investigation continued and maybe it became apparent that there was no burglary gang that day. No. There was no stranger that broke in there that day. No. And the likelihood was that this guy she was married to
0: who was having an affair. Yeah. Was the chief suspect. Well, you sure you just had to like the, I think he, he himself and um, Nikki Pelly and also Declan Quirney, who gave him his alibi that morning, um, they were brought in for questioning. I think on two occasions, all three of them, or maybe it was just once. So I'm not sure. But the 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 um, the scrum that happened outside those Garda stations, you know, that when they happened, like the 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 interest in it was just phenomenal mm. because you know. Because here was a guy who had gone on national television, you know, the biggest show in the country, um, you know, at a time when it was probably getting, you know, the highest ratings ever to say that, and, you know, where he was talking about his love for his poor murdered wife. And then, you know, a few weeks later, he's been kind of brought in for questioning, mm-hmm. along with his girlfriend and the guy who gave him the alibi. Like, it was quite the turn of events. And for yourself, I think your last meeting with him was a bit fraught. Ooh, yeah, yeah. Asked um, about that. So uh, um, I had there was a story that the paper they, they, there was a row over Rachel's tombstone between himself and the Callaleys. Um There there was some kind of thing where I think Jim had Jimmy had bought the the plot. And Joe had picked, Joe had picked out a headstone with the boys or whatever. But the Callalees at this stage just didn't want to have anything to do with them. Like They certainly didn't want him, you know, putting up a tombstone. Um, so that had become a bit of a problem. And I had heard about it and I, maybe he had told me or something like that. But I was going out and I asked, could I go out and meet him? Because um, I wanted to talk to him about this or whatever. And uh I said that they were going to run a story anyway um, about it. And he he didn't want that. And he was very annoyed about it. And I got the stare, you know, like a bit, felt a bit like, you know, isn't this what IRA people do? Like you were face to face with him. Yeah, we were in the conference room of his, um, the company that he was working for at the time. So he'd brought me in there. So it was just the two of us. And uh, he was, he was angry. You know, he was angry. He kind of went silent and there was a bit of, you know, bit of a stare off for mm. a few minutes and I was kind of suddenly aware that I hadn't brought anyone with me and you know but like actually look no I You didn't. know where you were in an
1: office but yeah. in the end of the day you were seeing a very different character very, a chameleon almost. Yeah.
0: Except that when we were leaving and when we were walking out he was doing that kind of um uh, people pleaser thing again that he he, he seemed to do, where he was kind of saying, oh, you you must have been, maybe you were a bit nervous coming in to meet me like this or whatever, you know, given what everyone's saying about me now. And I kind of tittered a bit and said, well, actually... And he was... I I got the feeling he was kind of hurt. Right. You know, like, it was It was kind of... It was a strange moment where he... Because I did... I was a little nervous. Like, not that I thought anything was going to happen, but, Mm. you know... You're well, suddenly, it was different
1: than the first time because this time you knew probably that you were going to meet a killer.
0: Well, or that he was certainly the main suspect. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. The trial. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah.
1: You sat almost beside him. I remember meeting you there a few times at yeah. the trial.
0: And uh, did he ever make eye contact no. with you or anything? Did he ever allude to knowing you or to... No, no. And, and and that's funny, actually, because there was like there were a couple of days, this was in the old when they used to go to the four courts for these cases. So the setup was ludicrous, you know, like the press bench was the same bench where the accused sat. Mm-hmm. So one stage, I remember there's a couple of days, I remember one day that there was all there was between myself and Joe was a guard, like or a prison guard, you know, like it was me, Joe at the end, prison guard and myself, and you're just kind of you could have leaned in and talked to him. We were pretty much. But no, there was no... And, and during the trial, there was a big, like, you know, like he, he was able to lean over the bench and talk to his legal team. There was a lot of, like, he was very chatty to the prison guard. Not the prison guards. They would have just been guards. Mm. Sorry, sure. He was, you know, he was... Uh, yeah, he was out on bail. He was out on bail. So he was, um, again, it was that people pleaser thing. He was like there was no kind of sitting there kind of being, you know, sullen or I'm a innocent man or obviously he was, you know, saying he was an innocent man but he was, he's he quite gregarious. He kept the act up really and the only thing that
1: goosed him was the phone records. Yeah. And it was always said had he left the phone in the office yeah. that day because of course what is believed happened was he went out to the house, he set up a... a an alibi for himself yeah. to, to state that he was somewhere else outside the office. He went out of the house, bludgeoned her to death, um, made his way back to the office, yeah. and then staged well, that he was looking for her, that he was concerned she hadn't yeah. collected the kids. He was ringing around, yeah. and he made his way back to the house, knowing that her mother
0: was going to. Well, discover. he had run. Yeah. So he was in. So he worked for a company that did kind of like outside broadcasting. So it was the bus station in Phibsborough, which he had gone to with this guy, Derek, um Quirney. And uh, so it was handy for him because he was able to get onto the road that led straight out to the Nile. And um, and like that was all part of the evidence, like that those guards, the work they did, and that was incredible. Like, you know, just, you know, testing that route over and over again. Um, so he did, he got up and he got back down again to the bus station and then he started ringing around. Well, the crash people rang, rang him first mm-hmm. to say that Rachel had not picked up one of the children. Then he started ringing around, and he rang Rose. And uh, he—I uh, don't know if Rose remembers it, but I think at the time she kind of just had a feeling that you know there must be something seriously really wrong if Rachel had not gone to collect the children. Mm. So she got in her car and headed out to the knoll. But he knew this. But he, she knew he knew this mm-hmm. in the meantime. So he went collected the two children who were being minded at the crash. And in the meantime, Rose had gone in and found her daughter on the floor. And the scene that she described in court of that was just... And has described, I was only listening to her recently. I mean, it
1: it, it is, I mean... It was disgusting. It's unspeakable what she she saw and had to go through. And the point you're making is that he knew he was going to put her through that. Yeah he brought his children
0: to that house with him. She came out and she said to him, don't bring the children in. He was about to walk into the house with the children. And she came out and said to him, don't bring the children in here. Rachel's up there and there's something wrong. So like, you know, would he have allowed the children to go into the bedroom and seen their mothers like that, mother like that? You know, I don't think we'll It just
1: really is a stark Mm. show of the lack of empathy that he, he has. Um, obviously the affair with Nikki Pelley came out during the trial um, and all the nasty things he was saying about Rachel in the background.
0: Mm.
1: He was found guilty and remains in prison. Yeah. But in prison has continued to protest his innocence. Yeah. Has appealed every which way he can. Yeah. And has only recently decided he's not going to go to Europe because he's probably... Coming towards the end of a life term, an average life term is sixteen to eighteen years, yeah. and he has served fourteen or fifteen now.
0: Yeah, yeah. High-profile so like prisoner like him, yeah, uh, who still protests his innocence. Mm. Yeah, but he may or may remorse. not get
1: parole. He is certainly very high-profile, and I think, yeah. I think um, Rose Calloway still talks about him in order to try and keep that profile up.
0: Oh, absolutely. And she does, like, she's, her energy is incredible because, like, that family have been through a lot. You know, Rachel's sister, Anne, only died about um, five or six years later of ill health. And, you know, they've, uh, they're amazing, really, what they have done and about keeping, you know, and I suppose it's, it's in Rachel's memory to make sure that she's not forgotten, but also that, um, you know, that people r- remember just exactly what it is that Joe Riley did and that he still won't admit it. Like, you, you wonder, would, would there be some solace or some comfort they could take if he finally, he's not going to now, you know, that's obvious, but, you know, would things have been different for them if he had, admitted what he had done and shown some remorse like would they have still felt the need to be as um, public as they are about it Mm. but I think families do because there's that awful system that has been changed recently but where they when they come up for parole they have to you know write letters to the parole board explaining why they don't think that the Person should be released. Well, they still do. It's just okay. that
1: the um, the yeah. time in which they can apply for parole has oh, been has lengthened.
0: Changed.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, he was somebody who went in for parole as quickly as he could. Yeah, he believes he should be out he believes that he, he should be seen as an innocent man, somebody who has been wrongly
0: accused and somebody who should be freed. Well, his family still believes that mm. as well. And like, you know, that's, that's an important part of this. That, and So you can kind of understand why he has behaved the way he does. His, from my understanding, his two boys believe him to be innocent. Mm. So, you know, um, and that's their prerogative. But in hindsight and with some
1: maturity, can you understand that? Because he was obviously an incredibly convincing liar. Yeah. And instead of actually having to, you know, say that second hand as we do as, in, as journalists in a lot of cases, you have first hand experience of that.
0: Yeah. Like there's, there's an element of this that he did, you know, that he did it for those boys in a way. Because he didn't, because he knew that those boys would be taken off, not taken off him. He did it so as he didn't have to be the McDonald's dad. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, so main custody would, would have been given to Rachel. And he knew that. There was a whole section in the, the trial about, you know, that he had tried to basically get her, you know, framed as being an unfit mother and the social services had called out and interviewed them and, you know, uh, over whether she was being too aggressive with the children um, and all that kind of thing. And that was his, that was one of his efforts to try and maybe kind of get sole custody of the children. And when he saw that wasn't working, that's why he went down the route of murdering her. So, you know, he wanted... He wanted a family, but he just wanted Nikki to be there instead of Rachel. And Anne has often talked about that. Like, what you know, they could have just divorced. Rachel could have gone on and met someone else. But he didn't want that because he didn't want to be, as you say, a weekend dad. He wanted to possibly just continue the way things were in that house. He moved those boys back into that house after the murder.
1: And tell me this much because, you know, you wrote the book The Suspect and you're regularly still asked to talk about it and to talk about the the famous murder tour, etc. Do you think about it at all outside that? Do you ever consider it... Do you ever think about that night in that house and
0: have you mulled over what it was he was doing? I think... I think there's a certain part of you that has to kind of block that stuff out because if you did kind of I, I tell you what has put me off I, I'm not a huge fan of crime shows um, that involve that kind of stuff because I just you know because I think you can you can kind of put it into the realm of almost that it doesn't happen you know that it's just some comes out of someone's imagination whereas in fact like this stuff is real like this is what some people are capable of, and that's that's Whereas awful. Crime as a
1: genre has almost become or has become an area of entertainment, and people use it yeah. as entertainment and they watch the, shows, all these shows and they that want that all this. But you actually physically stood there
0: and saw, yeah. that. And I'd, yeah, and I just I'd, like like it's not entertaining, you know. Mm. Like it's just like I, I do understand the the you know the the interest in it and the fascination. The, uh, absolute fascination with it but um, yeah I think maybe it would have like I don't I can't read thrillers and stuff like a suspense kind of makes my heart race in ways I don't like um, so I don't think that yeah it kind of like it had that I think effect on me mm. um, and also you know this would have happened anyways like you know things went along but I'm a little less naive and trusting I think now Um I would uh, hold my wish about whether you know if someone was to ask me whether I thought someone was innocent or not I I would I would say let's give it some time (laughs) Let's wait and see Let's wait and see Yeah Uh,
1: Jennifer Friel thank you very much Thanks You've been listening to Crime World a podcast from sundayworld.com produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free Sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.